Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Filled with fury. Good morning. I pray you've had a good week. Surviving the heat wave that we have looks like it's going to continue going a little bit more this week. Let me ask you a question. What kind of religion produces a hardened heart towards others? What kind of religion is it that would produce someone to hate someone else? Or let me ask you this. Have you ever despised someone so much, you were so bitter, you were held in a grudge so deep that you didn't want to see anything good happen to them? You could not wish them even good luck. You'd be willing to see an innocent suffer. Or here's another question. What is it about Jesus? When you look at Jesus and his life, what is it about Jesus that causes people to hate him? To hate his name? To despise his ministry? To deny his teaching? We're seeing all of these come to play as we continue as this fifth conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders in Luke chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. Last week we considered the fourth conflict between Jesus and religious leaders as Luke narrates the displeasure of the Pharisees with the actions of Jesus' disciples as they walked through the grain fields. The Sabbath, as you may recall, was a central focus of worship for the Jewish people. Everything centered around the Sabbath. The New City Catechism states that the Sabbath was instituted by God, and you'll see this once again on your monitor. As you look at what is the purpose of the Sabbath. Well, the Sabbath day is when we spend time in public and private worship of God. It's where we rest from routine employment, serve the Lord and others, and so anticipate the eternal Sabbath. There is a purpose for it. There is a reason why God instituted not only at the day of creation, but then also as he instituted it and made it a command in the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law. However, the Pharisees had turned the Sabbath into a weapon that enslaved the people and served to feed the prideful, self-righteous attitudes of those religious leaders. They used it for their own benefit. Yet Jesus as a Messiah, he's here and he's saying, I possess the authority to correct your wrong teaching and, and expose your evil hearts. In our passage last week, Jesus declared that he was the Lord of the Sabbath, not the religious leaders. And Christ's lordship over the Sabbath means nothing less than that he owns the Sabbath and he is the one who is to be focused of its worship not themselves. He is the rightful interpreter, whether it's to change the day of week or to shape its characteristics. And he is the custodian of God's rest and the perpetrator of it. I can't say that word. He's the one who keeps it going. This week, Luke continues with the fifth conflict between Jesus and religious leaders as once again they confront him about the Sabbath. This time, Jesus is going to expose their evil and hardened hearts, not only towards him, but also to an innocent man who's suffering from a damaged hand. So with that, Luke chapter 6, let's read verses 6 through 7 
as we just begin our study this morning. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they may find a reason to accuse him. Father, thank you for this portion of Scripture. We do not know this man with the withered hand, his name. We don't know where he's from. We don't know what his lot in life, other than he probably suffered from this deformity. But here he becomes a central part of this conflict, written for all of posterity, written in the Word of God. So we come this morning to understand it. Maybe not know all information, and Lord, keep us from unfruitful uh, discussions and subjectives that have nothing that's found in the truth. But Lord, help us to realize what is this pur- purpose of this passage for us. May it give us certainty about who Jesus is, his, his life and his ministry. And lead us into the way, Lord, that you, you called us to. And may we respond to your Spirit's work. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. Now, with any group of people that are gathered together, just like we are this morning, you're going to find different motivations of why are you here? What, what is it that brought you, made you come here this morning to, to defy the government and maybe even come masses to come and hear God's preaching? And in any crowd, it's different. Some are here because it's a, uh, they'd love to be here. They want to be in part of God's family. Others are here for encouragement. Others may be here saying, I want to use my spiritual go- gifts. Others may want to, to, to come and just hear God's word preach. Others are here because of duty. And some, because they're young, it's because my parents are here and, and I've got to sit here. So there's always different motivations in any crowd, in any group of people. And this one is, is no different. Luke points out there's three characters here. There's Jesus, the Messiah, his motivation was there to, to teach and proclaim the message of the kingdom. Again, we've seen this in Luke. His, his uh, method of operation was to go every Sabbath day to a synagogue. And as a visiting uh, teacher and one whose reputation is growing, he would be invited to teach. We see a man who has a damaged hand. It's called a withered hand. It was shriveled up. Uh, whether it was from an accident, an incident, uh, through a work incident, or whether he was something he was born with, we are not told other than it was a damaged hand. He was there to listen and to learn and to probably hopefully to be healed. He had heard that Jesus had power to heal. The religious leaders, though, were there to find fault with Jesus so that they may bring him up at charges and at least disqualify his ministry or to squelch his growing reputation. So their motivation was different than the withered man with the withered hand and that of Jesus and the others who were there listening to Jesus. But it's important to note that they're only there to find something wrong with Jesus that they may accuse him. This is where their attitudes, their hearts, the condition of their heart had come to. One interesting observation that Luke notes is that the religious leaders believed that Jesus could heal. They believed that he could heal. They, they knew he could heal. They had seen him heal, but they wondered if he would heal on the Sabbath, on their holy day. Now, Jesus, again, is aware of their intentions, as we've seen throughout Luke. He was able to see into their hearts and into their minds. So he asked them a question to expose the hardened hearts, not only uh, to himself, but also to all those that were there listening to Jesus and hopefully to themselves. Read with me in verse 8. But Jesus knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he arose and he stood there. 
And Jesus said to them, speaking of the religious leaders, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy? Now, think about this with me for a moment before we just read through this very quickly. Think about this man. Think about being put in the spotlight. Could you imagine if I were to ask one of you to stand here and, and come right here and start asking questions? No, no one likes to be that spotlight. This poor man is now the center of attention as Jesus, Jesus calls him forward and challenges the religious leaders with a question about the law. Walter Wessel, one uh, a theologian, reports that the rabbinic law allowed healing on the Sabbath, but only in the event that life was actually in danger. Now, in this case, the man's life was not in danger, though his life was definitely impacted by his damaged hand. You may recall that if his hand was damaged, that this man could not work for a living, most likely. Uh, and Mark, I think it says it was actually his right hand, uh, or I think actually Luke actually tells it was his right hand, uh, making it think that it's his dominant hand. He probably couldn't work uh, in the fields and in other ways. And also because he has a damaged hand, he would not be able to go into the temple for worship. So again, like the paralytic or like the leopards, this man is, is kind of outside society. And we see that Jesus' uh, heart and his, his desire is for the outsider, the outcast, the one who is not loved. Though as this man's life is not dan uh, uh, in danger, his life is definitely impacted by his injury. The New American Bible Commentary notes that Jesus challenges the thoughts of his opponents. The ultimate issue for him was not doing good, good during, uh, versus doing nothing, but rather doing good versus doing evil. For failure to do good in such instances is an effect to do evil. So as in the other case, Jesus should just let it go. But Jesus is reordering thinking, saying, if you have an opportunity to do good to someone, to not do it is what? Evil. We'll look at that verse a little bit later. Once again, it seems that the religious leaders refuse to answer Jesus' question. Now, you can almost imagine the long, pregnant pause that happens as Jesus is looking around at the group, waiting for their reply. It was probably so quiet that you could hear a pin drop as the rest of the people in the synagogue watched in anticipation and wonderment. The man with the damaged hand was probably sweating bullets as he's sitting here in the middle looking between Jesus, who probably had a compassionate look on his face, and, and the look of the Pharisees as they were looking back. He's still hoping to be healed. He doesn't know what's going to happen here. In any case, the religious leaders remain silent, not answering Jesus' challenging question. And it's not because they didn't know, but because they truly, listen to this, they truly didn't care about the man who was standing before them. They were more concerned about a law that they had interpreted than the man that was standing there before them. Their hatred for Jesus was overpowering. It was more hatred in their heart than compassion for this man. Look with me at verse 10. As Jesus responds, as their heart is exposed. And after looking around at them all, he said, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. 
Now in Mark's account of this event, he informs us that Jesus was angry and grieved with their hardened hearts and responded by compassionately healing the man. Luke's not going in that route. He just says Jesus at that point just stopped with them, looked at the man and restores his hand, heals him. Now, this is not a sinful anger of Jesus, but reflects a holy anger, a righteous indignation of their prideful sin that would lead them to disregard their fellow man. This is similar to an event that's recorded later. We'll look at uh, probably in a year or so in Luke chapter 13, in verse 15, concerning a woman with a back problem where Jesus says, You hypocrites, speaking to the religious leaders. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead him away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, a a child of Israel, with whom Satan has bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? In the eyes of the Pharisees, animals were worth more than humans. Jesus attacks their hypocrisy, their hypocritical hardened hearts that are full with anger and arrogance and pride, yet void of any mercy and compassion. Now this is not worship. This is not pleasing to God. You understand that. They have missed the whole point of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a time of worship, and what better way to worship than to honor God who has shown us mercy and to love our neighbors by showing the same mercy. The religious leaders were wrongly believed that they were the righteous ones, that they were the bearer of Yahweh's truth. They were the discerners of the law, the ones who determined how people were to live and worship. However, true worship is found, as Mark says in chapter Mark, uh, Mark chapter 12. What is the most important here in Israel? The Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. We know this is the first commandment. And Jesus said, but the second is here, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these, speaking of those two. And so here they're failing in the most basic law of God is to love and show compassion. A religious attitude, a ritual, listen to this please, a religious attitude, a ritual that dehumanizes anyone is no religion at all. Let me say that again. A religious attitude or ritual that dehumanizes anyone is no religion at all. But with compassion, Jesus restores the man's hand. He is now able to join the temple worship. He is now able to work for his living without impediment. As in all of Jesus' healing miracles, the healing is immediate and complete. What an immense joy and relief as you and I consider this man. What he must have felt when he looked down to see it completely healed. Surely the people rejoiced and were amazed as they witnessed his hand morph into shape and respond with strength. Not so with the religious leaders. How do they respond to this man's healing? It's in verse 11. Read with me. But they were filled with fury. Filled with fury. Could you imagine that? Not just angry, not just ticked off, not just put off. They are filled with rage at what Jesus had done. 
Now, the fact that the man had his hand healed is really, they, they don't really care about that. He's just a prop. And, you know, thinking of it just now, maybe this man was a plant. I do not know by the religious leaders. However, he walks away with a hand restored. The people are encouraged. They're strengthened by what they see Jesus do. God is glorified. Jesus is magnified. But the religious leaders are filled with fury. And they discussed with one another in verse 11 what they might do to Jesus. Now, you and I would say, I know what I would do to Jesus. I'd pay him. I'd get down and say, thank you, if I was his family members. I would would respond, could you heal me? Give him the key to the city. Say, hey, can I be your marketing tool? I'll help you out. What could I do to spread it? But they were filled with fury. What a reaction to someone being healed. Imagine being so hard-hearted that you would prefer someone to continue to suffer rather than being made whole. Now, before you and I get on our high horse, this has been the history of the church for ages. We are now in turbulent times where people are speaking of the church and its history in lifting up and um, subsidizing and encouraging and giving cover for slavery. And we have to admit, it was, it has. There are still churches today that would use uh, a scripture to say that this is proper and right. Now, there is some things that the Bible does say about slavery, but I'm talking about American chattel slavery. And so we do need to listen. We do need to understand but there are ways in which we ourselves use the Bible to treat others out of, and dehumanize people. We do that with people of the street, the homeless, many times. Well, if a man can't work, he shouldn't eat. And we walk by, not realizing we may not understand what their condition is. We have this American concept. We pull each other up by the strap of our own boot, which is a good idea. The Bible has some things to say, but there's also many things we talked about last week where, where you do take care of your neighbors and provide for them. Even in a small community of this, we can get hard-hearted towards the living well, trying to raise some money or others who may fall into sin. Do we lift them up? Do we build them up? Do we restore a brother or do we condemn them? speak against them, gossip against them. So we must check our own heart. Pray for our leaders. You know, and I was convicted of this. We've been complaining about uh, the state of California and the city and the county and all the regulations. But I realized, you know, I haven't spent any time this week actually praying for Governor Newsom, for our mayors and our city governments that are under immense pressure, for the teachers who are refusing to come back. And I recognize my own rituals and religious thoughts and interpretations wind up creating a hardness in my heart as well. But as we come back here, they're filled with fury. Their heart is so hard they prefer someone to suffer rather than be made whole. Mark's gospel actually tells that they respond by joining forces with the, with the supporters of King Herod to destroy Jesus. And what's interesting is those two groups were not fond of each other. They were constantly in opposition, proving the old saying, that enemy 
of my enemy is my friend. Now, as in last week's passage, Jesus confronted the error in their beliefs and teaching. As the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus is uniquely qualified to correct their misinterpretations and point them to the true teachings of the law. And from our passage last week and this week, Jesus is teaching that the Sabbath was designed for man's rest and well-being. Sabbath was never intended to be a yoke of bondage. It was intended for man, not man for the Sabbath. It was to direct our hearts towards our Creator and all of His good provisions for us. The Sabbath was never meant to restrict necessity. People need to eat and take care of their families and the animals. It was never meant to restrict service to God. Even the priests had to work on the Sabbath and carrying out their duties. It was never meant to restrict acts of mercy. If one could rescue an animal, then how much more should they take care of one another? So you and I need to understand what is the Sabbath? What is Luke trying to teach us through Jesus' ministry here? And that is the Sabbath is a gift from God to man. That means we might find rest from our labors, especially in a sin-cursed world, in order that we may turn our hearts and worship to the creator of all things. The religious leaders had co-opted the law to meet and serve their own self-interest, exposing their own evil hearts. Now you may recall, at the beginning of Luke, we learn that he is writing his gospel, in order to give confidence and certainty about the life and ministry of Jesus, mainly to a Gentile audience that had never met Jesus and never been in Jerusalem. To them, like you, to them, you and I don't understand the Jewish concept of the Sabbath and the role it plays. You and I may have a Christian Sabbath of the Sunday, but we don't see it and review it as the same way as they viewed the Sabbath. And the reason that he includes these five conflicts with the religious leaders is to point out that Jesus' ministry is going to face opposition, not only from Satan and his demons, as we read earlier in the gospel, but also from those that Jesus came to rescue. Now that you and I do understand. Luke's original readers there, the Gentiles' readers, would understand the opposition to Jesus' ministry. As I said before, what is it about Jesus, even today, that causes people to hate him and his word, his ministry, and his church, his bride, and his people. And see, you and I need to recognize that we will face opposition. should not be surprised. Peter tells us, or James tells us that, be not surprised, be not, uh, uh, when you see that trials and things are coming, The religious leaders, as well as most of the populace of the Jewish people, are going to reject the very Messiah that they have been praying for and anticipating. In the same way, people are looking for purpose in their life. They're looking for hope. They're looking for a solution. But they're rejecting the very thing that they desire so much. You see, Jesus is the pinnacle of the redemption story that began in Genesis 3.15. When Yahweh promised a prince that would come to redeem his chosen people from their sin and from the curse of Adam and death. 
However, they, just like most people today, will not accept God's plan of redemption. Like the Pharisees, they desire to earn their way into God's good graces. We can do enough good. I am a good enough person that God will forgive me. God will save me. I will go into eternity with him. They demand a works-based redemption plan. And I can understand the, 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 the pull of that. We all want some type of works. Even we as Christians who say, yes, grace alone, but yet we find ourselves falling into a works-based religion, work-based system. And I will tell you, just like the Pharisees, a work-based system will cause your heart to be hardened and begin to judge. We want a work redemption plan that's works-based that will bring us the glory and give us the credit And the basis of a work-based system is that I must then judge the other, my neighbor, not in a loving way, but in a harsh way. Because I know my own heart and I know that I don't measure up. But if I can judge myself against someone else, then that lifts me up. That's the foundation of a works-based, self-righteous system. That's found not only in the world today, whether it's Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnessism, uh, Hinduism, Muslim, uh, any religion is going to be work-based. But you know what? In many churches and pews and taught from the pulpit is still works-based type religion. We'll take grace and then add some works-based things on there. Now, I'm not about to go into James and Paul in any type of conflict. There is no conflict there. We've talked about this. I'll I'll lead you to our website. You can find our series in James when we talked about faith plus works and how that works itself out. But God's plan is not a works-based redemption plan based on our self-righteousness and what you and I can do. No, God's plan is one in which we do not work at all, but only receive the gift of salvation. Jesus is putting an end to the self-righteous works of any and all who want to proclaim that they are good enough to come to God. The story of redemption is founded upon the works of Christ on our behalf. It's the innocent for the guilty, the great exchange of our sin for Christ's righteousness. Now, think back again, back to the man in our story, the man with the withered hand. Here he is, uh, you know, front and center. He's caught in the middle between Jesus, who wants to show this man grace and compassion, and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, who just want to see him just go on in this life. He's just a, a pawn in their game to accuse Christ. He could not heal himself. He had lived for a number of years, maybe even from birth, with this deformity. It had impacted his life in such a negative way. No amount of works or self-righteousness or religious rituals will ever make that man heal himself. Be clean. Be complete. Nothing will fix him except interside right Jesus. An ordained moment, not an accident or incident that that man and Jesus met on that day. Luke writes on another Sabbath, but that Sabbath had been ordained from the foundation of the world. Jesus was going to do something miraculous for that man. 
Now, I don't know if this man wound up following Jesus, as we're not told, as in some other miracles. But did he heal this man? Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 11, if you would. You see, that's the gospel. It's the great exchange. You and I cannot earn our way into heaven. No amount of works. The Bible says that all have sinned. There is none righteous. No, not one. And you and I must understand it. This is the message that we must share with our friends and our families and our loved ones. As difficult as it is. Unfortunately, when people come to us with their problems and they come to us with counsel, we spend so much time building them up, encouraging them, making them feel better about themselves. We become the Joel Olsteins and the Oprahs of the world. The self-help. The motivators. And many times all you and I do, we think that we're helping, but all we're doing is we're just heaping more sin, more burdens upon them that they cannot carry. The religious leaders could not carry this, but Christ came to heal us, to exchange our sin, our burden for his righteousness. One important truth that you and I must understand You'll see it here on the monitor as you're turning to Matthew 11. The important truth about the Sabbath and its purpose. Its creative purpose. It's not just a religion ritual that Jesus, another burden that Yahweh is putting upon the children of Israel. No, the truth is, is that the Sabbath, just like the tabernacle and all the things within the tabernacle, just as all the natural revelation and then God's special revelation, His Word, it points to something much greater. It points to a future time of rest that's found in Christ. As he provides for our salvation, declaring that there is no need to work for your salvation, no need for self-righteous acts. I want to take a moment to consider the words of Christ from our scripture reading earlier. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Landon read these words. Spoken by Jesus to the crowd, an extension to us this morning. Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I hope you have an underlined in your Bible, highlighted. It's one that we should memorize. If there is any words of counsel, any words of hope that you may give to a family member, a co-worker, these are the words that they need to hear. This is a wonderful promise to God's children that you and I must know, that you and I must understand, and that you and I must cling to. In order to do that, let's take a moment and look a little bit more into the words of that promise. He says, come to me who will labor. That's those who are struggling or toiling. It's, it's an active word. You're trying to be right with God. You're trying to make yourself a better person. You recognize that you aren't who you want to be. And so you're working to be the one that people expect you to be. Whether it's yourself, maybe it's your parents, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's those around you. We're working to keep the mask on, to keep up the charade of who we are and what they expect. That's tough. That's heavy. And you know that. You take your mask off at the end of the day and you look in the mirror and maybe you can't even make eye contact. 
because you know you're not that person. You have not met your own expectation. But yet, what do you and I do? We go to bed weary of our labor. We wake up and we do it all again. He then says to those that are heavy laden, this is overload, like a beast of burden. This is a passive. This is someone who's receiving a load, not one who's working at digging, but it's one who just says, here's this load, now carry it. This is guilt and shame from not meeting the expectations. There are many of us that have no joy in life because guilt and shame. Now this world will try to, they'll give you a therapist, they'll give you a psychiatrist, they'll give you medication to deal with guilt and shame. How do you cope with the guilt and shame in your life? All of us have it. All of us carry it. All of us are stooped by it. They try to deny it. They try to put it on your parents. They try to put it on someone else. But that guilt and shame is there. Come to me, those who are struggling or or active and trying to be right with God. Come to me, those who are heavy laden, those who who are carrying the burden of guilt and shame and unmet expectations. And what does he say? I will give you rest. It's a present, it's salvation, it's future, it's heaven. He says you need to cease from action. No longer any self-effort. I will give you rest. Not that you have to earn it. Just come. Jesus says, my yoke. When you think of a yoke, it's not eggs. He's talking about a beast of burden, horses, mules, oxen, that would be tied up together so that they could pull together. He says, listen, the yoke that's upon me, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. That yoke is a discipleship. It means to follow him, to walk beside him in stride with Jesus. Learn from the revelation that Jesus alone imparts. So Jesus says there's a rest that's available to those that come upon, that come to him and that are willing to walk alongside He says, I will give you rest. I will carry that burden for you. I will do the toiling for you. Take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 4, if you would, please. The wonderful promise of Christ is that he invites us to join the Father in his creative rest. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see that after the sixth day on the seventh, Christ or Holy, the, uh, the Father rested from his work. And in this chapter of Hebrews chapter 4, the Holy Spirit commands us to enter into the Father's rest. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9. I want you to get there so you can see that and read that alongside with me. Hebrews chapter 4, 9, it looks everyone's there. So then, the writer of Hebrews writes, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter into that rest. That seems kind of odd. Now I got to strive so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. 
So what does it mean to enter into his rest? And that's what Jesus is offering here when he's talking about the Sabbath. When he's talking about this man with a deformed hand, he says there's something greater than working for your salvation, working for your self-righteousness. Well, the editors of the New Bible Commentary answered that question, and I'm going to put it up on the screen. They wrote it so well, I didn't. Why I thought it's silly to put, put it in my own words. So I, we're just going to read this together. So God intends His people, when speaking about enter into that rest, God intends His people to share in His own Sabbath rest. This involves in re- resting from the work that is committed to us at the present, just as God did from His. However, we are not to think of God's rest as the rest of inactivity. That's not what this means. Now, you two are going to be, Rod, what are you going to do this afternoon? I'm going to rest. Now, that means I'm taking a nap. So that, 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 that's what, one of the reasons God has the Sabbath, the Christian Sabbath, is so I can take a nap. It's the best day when I wake up in the morning. You can always know it's a good day when I know I get to take a nap later that day. But this is not to think of as an inactivity. For scripture makes it clear that he continues, speaking of God, continues to uphold, direct, and maintain his creation, having completed the work of establishing it. The image is rather, as we go on, one of freedom from toil and struggle. To enjoy with God the satisfaction and the perfection of his work in creating and redeeming us. It's kind of like coming home from work setting down and grabbing the paper and maybe a nice tea and knowing that you had a good day and you're enjoying the work that you did. Now, I don't know how many of you, in this world, that's hard to do sometimes, isn't it? You come home and you're just, oh, I didn't get anything done today. Uh, You know, we've talked about that before. But in this case, it's setting back and enjoying. You know, one of the things I kind of hate but love doing is vacuuming. Now, that sounds silly, but there's something about seeing a dirty floor and vacuuming and then seeing it clean. It's one of the few things that I get to see the results. You know, as a pastor, it's like, kind of like a teacher. You don't always see the result of your message. People go, well, how'd your message go? Well, I'm the wrong person to ask because I don't know. I don't know. It's the Spirit's work that's going to do the work. Now, I can feel satisfied in that I thought I got through it. I may think that I got it through logically, but many times someone comes and says, I have no idea what you said. But there's something about sitting down and saying, wow, look at that. So it's joining God in the satisfaction, perfection of his work in creating, and look at this, redeeming us. It's looking back and saying, I had a head full of stones, but but a heart full of stones, but look what God has done in my life. I'm not perfect, but look at what he's made in my life. Put another way, they write, we will be liberated from all the trials and the pressures of our present existence to serve God without hindrance and to live with him forever. That's the image that you should have in your mind. You know why you have bad days? You know why you have sufferings? You know why life is difficult? So that you could see that the new heaven and the new earth it's wonderful. So you can see the beauty of Christ. So you can see the goodness of God. It makes those things so much more wonderful. 
the last paragraph I want to share from the New Bible Commentary on the Sabbath rest. What does it mean to enter into God's rest? It says, there is therefore need to make every effort to enter that rest. So there is a striving. Since faith is the means by which we enter God's rest, the writer is clearly restating the warning about hardening our hearts. Do not be filled with fury and unbelief and doubting and untrusting in God's promises. He is not saying that we secure our salvation by good works, by no means. On the other hand, if faith is genuine, it will be expressed in obedience. Here's James. Show me your faith, I'll show you what works. Show me your works, I'll show you my faith. So our concern should be that no one will fail, fall by following the examples of the disobedience of the Israelites that's mirrored by the heart of the Pharisees who truly hate and despise the work and ministry of Jesus Christ. So you and I are striving is that praying for more faith and more grace. Faith to trust in the good promises of God, more grace for when we fail to do so. The faith helps us to walk and with Christ The grace helps us deal with the shame and guilt that comes when we don't meet those expectations and those desires. And if you're like me, you needed both of those this week. Let me give you a few applications. Three things I think that would come from this passage as we think of Christ reinterpreting, or not reinterpreting, but bringing back the truth, the spiritual, scriptural truth of what a Sabbath is for. Number one, do not let religious rules, traditions, or rituals prevent you from loving your neighbors. If you take a scripture of verse or a verse from scripture and it causes you to look at someone and disregard them, my guess is you probably have misused that scripture. James 4.17, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. The sin of omission. Galatians 6.19, let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those of the household of faith. Yes, our good works, our love for others starts in our home. It moves throughout, especially to the household of God, but then it moves throughout these doors and these windows to those that are unloving, to those that we would rather not help. Rest in the promises. Number two, rest in the promises that all who put their trust that God has accepted the works of Christ on our behalf is forgiven and accepted by God will spend eternity in the new heavens and new earth. See here on the monitor, 1 Peter 1, 3-5, and again, I would... If anything, I would encourage you to go back into our website and find First Peter and just go through the first three to four weeks of the messages that I've given, especially on these verses here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. It is not something that you have done. It is something that God has done for us. And he's given us a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
to an inheritance, something that you and I could look forward to that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, that's kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last days. That is for those that have come to him and that are walking in yoke with him. And then number three, we need to share this great truth with others, that they too may be whole. whole. For Paul writes, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. I pray that your heart may not be filled with fury, but for love and compassion for your fellow man. That you see who Christ is, and you've given up trying to work your way to heaven. That you would find the rest. Now, you would say, well, that's just for salvation. What about for Christians? Why? There's, there's Christians today. You here still find yourself working for your salvation. You've accepted uh, salvation by grace alone, but through faith alone, but yet you're still working for God's acceptance as if if you do not obey God perfectly, then God is made. Some of you think God is still angry and mad with you because you fell into temptation this week. You failed to follow him. You have not met God's expectation or your parents' expectation or your spouse. But let me tell you, to those that are in Christ, there is what? Romans 8.1. No condemnation. God has no mixture of wrath in his love for you. You are still trying to earn God's acceptance. And as Captain Picard said, resistance is futile from the board. It's futile. Come to him. God loves you. He knows that you are a mess. Peter, Paul himself, excuse me, said that I am the chiefest of sinners. God loves me. So rest in the wonderful works of Christ. There's a band called Skillet. They have a song called Rest. The lyric, still, soft, quiet, spoken verse, or voice, that persistently calls my name and quickens my heart, makes it alive to come. And I come. And I rest in the shelter of your love. I rest in the wonder of your grace. I rest in the wonder of your love. And I rest in the wonder of you. Embraced in the promise of you is rest for the weary soul. Releasing all that is mine, I reach for you. Would you do so this morning? He can make you whole. He can heal. He can make you complete. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I just want to take a moment as the worship team makes its way up, and I'm going to ask Randy to come on up for us to pause. Consider Luke chapter 6, 6 through 11, to consider what was spoken to us through Scripture this morning, and to pray that we may respond to God's work in our lives. Have you ceased from trying to earn your own salvation? Have you accepted the rest that comes from trusting in the works of Christ? Are you struggling because you feel that God is still angry with you and that you're having to continue to work for your salvation? Let it not be so. Pray for more grace and for more faith. For God will give you rest 
from your toils and your struggles. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your love. Let us not forget these words, but just continue to dwell with us this week. Let us struggle and con- with this scripture, this passage. And Father, expose the ways in which our hearts are filled with fury and we're angry. We're prideful. Expose the ways in which we still many times try to work to earn your forgiveness or your acceptance. Show the folly in doing so. And let us just give thanks and wonderful and gratitude for all your love towards us. We thank you for this in your name. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.